We are in the middle of baseball season with our two boys, 8 and 10, which means they are playing in different leagues, which means if we have an away game, we're there at least three hours, sometimes more. And sometimes away stadiums have really good concession stands, and sometimes they don't. And I'm at the age now where I'm not always willing to take that risk. You know, a few years ago, sure, I'm no longer a young man, and so these things have different repercussions. And so we're, we started packing dinner a lot when we go to, when we go to away games. And a big, a big problem has happened recently in the Pursley house because we, we can pound some cookies, and we found these M&M cookies, which we love. The problem is... There's two different grocery stores that we generally will shop at, and they both have really good M&M cookies, but one has really great M&M cookies. And last time Brooke went shopping, she picked up the cookies from the wrong grocery store. And I just pointed this out, and I said, hey, these are good. Don't get me wrong. It's not like they're inedible. We will pound these. They're fine, but they're not the great cookies. Could you maybe go out and pick up the great? She said, so you want me to go to another grocery store just to pick up another set of cookies? I'm like, yeah, that'd be perfect. She's like, no. Uh, so, so she didn't, and, and that was fine, totally understandable. She grabbed them another time that she was out. But then there was a problem, and the problem was my children discovered the great M&M cookies, and the good M&M cookies were still there, but they were going to go bad. They were going to go stale. So I did what any loving, supporting father did, and I hid the really great cookies from my kids so that they would eat all of the good M&M cookies, and then we could pull out the great cookies once the good cookies were gone. And so that is precisely what I did. And we ate all of the good ones. They were finally gone. I still had the great ones hidden away. I was going to put them down where everybody could see them. I just forgot until I got busted one day. And then I put them down where everybody could see them. And the problem when everybody could see them was simply this. My boys love M&M cookies just as much as I do. And so we got to the point where there was one cookie left last night. There was one great cookie left, and I was in the basement. Brooke was out running some errands, and the boys were upstairs, and I thought, I'm going to go eat that last cookie. And so I come up from the basement, and as I turn the corner, looking into the kitchen, I see my oldest son, who's there, unaware that there's anyone around him, and in his hands, he has the package with the last great M&M cookie in the package. And our eyes meet, and he let, out a, he let out a little bit of a scream, and the package of cookies went up in the air, and then he caught them, and he's like, ah, and I said, what are you doing? And he looked at me, and he said, hey, Dad, I'll split it with you. Because he's my oldest, and he's a lot like me. You know, our youngest child, if he had the package of cookies in his hands, he'd have busted that sucker open and started eating it before I could even get over there. He's a lot like his mother. Uh, but, you know, the oldest, the oldest who's a lot like me, looks at me and says, Dad, I am, I'll split the cookie with you. And I'm like, buddy, you don't, you don't have to split the cookie with me if you don't want He's like, I would love to split the cookie with you, Dad. I said, okay, great. We can, we can split the cookie. And so that's exactly what we did. We split the cookie. And it was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. But I find myself raising our two boys 
and, and they're, they're great kids, but they're kids, and they're going to make mistakes, and they make mistakes, and sometimes you just shake your head, and sometimes you laugh really hard, but not in front of them, because you don't want them to see you laughing really hard, even though what they did was just really funny, and then you try to compose yourself, and, and then go through life, and just tell them, hey, I can't believe you did this, don't, don't do this again, and then you laugh when, when you turn around, but, but one of the things that I find myself saying to them sometimes, when they just do something that I just shake my head at, is, what do you have to say for yourself? What do you have to say for yourself? I don't know if you've ever pulled out that parenting line or a line like it, but if you've ever gotten to that point where you just kind of shake your head and you're just looking at them like, what, what do you even have to say for yourself? You know, when you find yourself in that situation, you're a little annoyed with them, you're, you're a little uncertain, and you're just trying to piece it all together, but it's generally not said from a really good, wonderful place. You're generally at, towards the end of your rope when you get to that point. And what we're going to see today as we continue our look at the book of Acts and look at the early church is we're going to see a guy named Stephen who we were introduced to last week in Acts chapter 6. He finds himself there, but it's not with a parent. He finds himself there in court. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can download in whatever app store you utilize. And once the Bible app's installed on your device, there are a number of great features within it. One of the features that we regularly utilize here at Lakeside is called Events. And there you can either enable your locations or just type in Lakeside Community Church Algoma. We'll pop right up. You can follow along with us right there on your phone or your tablet. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, we're going to start in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. If you're new to Lakeside, welcome. We are so glad that you are here. Uh, today we're going to be looking at all of Acts chapter 7. This is the first time since I've been at Lakeside we're going to preach through 60 verses in one week. It's not what we normally do, so buckle up. Uh, nobody died the first service, so we'll see if we have the same luck the second service, hopefully, uh, but we'll find out. And if you're joining us via the stream, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside, and the verse will be available for you on your screen below. We don't have time to review everything we've seen so far in the book of Acts, but just to catch you up, before we dive into Acts chapter 7 this morning, what we've seen so far in the early church is Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive, and he told his followers, go and transform this region. Go and transform the world with the hope that you found as a result of a relationship with me. Acts chapter 2, the, the church is formed, God sends his Holy Spirit down, and people are never the same. The, the message of Jesus is taken out, and all kinds of people from all over the region are transforming their lives, finding the hope of Jesus. And this is a great thing, but it leads to some problems, and that's what we saw last week. As so many people had made the decision to follow Jesus, and so many people were now part of the church, and the church was being so generous that there were some widows whose needs were being met, and there were other widows whose needs weren't being met. And so there was a disagreement between a group of people called the Hellenists and the Jews between the widows and whether or not every widow was being treated fairly and whether or not they were getting the support that they needed. And the apostles, who were most of the apostles were disciples, 
they followed Jesus for three years, and then there was one additional apostle who came into the fray. They said, we care about what's going on, but our work can't be hindered as a result of our focus and our attention going to this thing. So we're going to appoint people just to make sure that all of your needs are being met. And one of the people that they appointed was named Stephen. And Stephen's job was to make sure that every widow was taken care of. And as he did that, the message of Jesus continued to increase. And people People saw how much people that followed Jesus loved one another and cared for each other. And people said, I want to be part of that. I, wanted, I want in on what's going on over there. And they started to give their lives to Jesus, which led to opposition. Because what we don't always think of, first and foremost, but it's always true, is there's a supernatural and there's a spiritual realm to, to everything that we do. And we don't always think of that because oftentimes it happens in the unseen realm, but there is opposition here to the work of God. There's opposition to love. There's opposition to the hope and the message of Jesus. And as the message increased, so does the opposition. So they have arrested Stephen, and now he is in court, and he starts to present to the court the hope of Jesus. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1, we read these words. And the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? Now, this is the equivalent in our court system to a judge asking a defendant, how do you plead? How do you plead? He's heard the case brought against Stephen, and the question now is, Stephen, how do you plead? And Stephen is about to enter his plea, and it is not short. And his plea is a remembrance. It's a historical walk through all the ways that God was active in the Old Testament. And this is what Stephen said. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So Stephen gives his response. He's called before the council. He's called before them, and they say, how do you plead? And Stephen says, this is how I plead. And before we dive into that response, I want us just to pause here for just a moment and notice how Stephen, who has been oppressed, he has, his lies have been made about him, how does he respond to the council? Brothers and fathers, that even though he had been disrespected, even though he had been oppressed, he still chose to hold the people who oppressed him in high regard. He still showed them honor and respect. And that, that's, a, that's a lost idea in our culture. 
it's, it's become nearly impossible for people to recognize that we can disagree with one another without being disagreeable. And as people that love and follow Jesus, this really needs to be a hallmark of our life, especially in a culture where this is a lost art. In the culture where everybody wants to oppose everyone else and anybody that disagrees with you is your, is your enemy and you must vehemently oppose them. We just as people that love and follow Jesus need to recognize we're going to have disagreements with people. We're going to have disagreements with one another and that's okay. We can disagree without being disagreeable. And what we need to do as people that love and follow God is we need to set the tone. Even for people that don't respect us. We need to show honor and respect to other people. We must set the tone. That in and of itself, in an age of outrage, will set us apart. People will look at us and see there's something different about us when everybody else wants to be outraged about everything, and we just say, hey, I'm going to disagree with you on some things, but that's okay. I can still love you. I can still be your friend. I can still be your neighbor. We can value one another. We can disagree without being disagreeable. And it starts when we hold one another in respect. It starts when we honor each other, even people that oppose us, even people that oppress us. And we will face opposition because, again, there is an unseen spiritual realm where the enemy does not want the hope of Jesus to, to be broadcast. He does not want the hope of Jesus to be shared. And yet we, as people that love and follow Jesus, we must set the tone, not wait for how everybody else is going to treat us to determine how we're going to respond to them. But we set the tone and we choose love, and we choose to honor and respect other people. It's what Stephen did here. He showed honor and respect even to those who were oppressing him and disagreeing with him. And then he goes back to Abraham. He says, remember Abraham. Remember everything that God promised Abraham, that God takes Abraham out. When Abraham owned no land, he said, all of this land, all of this land is going to be yours, Abraham. And not only is it going to be yours, but it's going to be your offsprings. The only problem is Abraham doesn't have any kids. He doesn't have any children. And he's not a young man. It's not like God pulled Abraham aside when Abraham was 20 and said, all of this land is going to be yours. And then not only yours, but your children and your children's children. Abraham is an old man and his wife's old, well beyond childbearing age. When God makes this promise. And he promises Abraham these things. But notice what else God promises. He also promises your offspring, they're going to experience oppression. They're going to experience being wanderers. Being refugees. That's what your offspring is going to experience as well. And so is God good when he promises Abraham all kind of land and all kinds of kids? Yes. Is God still good when he promises Abraham your offspring is going, to be, is going to wander through the land? They're going to be enslaved? Is God still good? And the answer is yes. That God does not change when circumstances change. And so what does God do? God gives Abraham a promise. And he, he gives Abraham a sign that marks this promise. A sign that literally marks Abraham for the rest of his life, that he takes with him everywhere he goes and forever 
forever stays with him in the sign of circumcision that forever stays with him so that in the good times we remember that God is good and he is faithful. But in the bad times, Abraham and his offspring had to carry with them that promise that the same God who is good in the good times is good in the challenging times as well. And then Stephen continues. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back, back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And Stephen says, don't just think about Abraham. Don't just think about Isaac and Jacob. Think about Joseph. Think about what Joseph's been through. And here is Joseph. Joseph, who, who is a son, and he's the favorite son, and his brothers hate him for this fact. And so one day they take Joseph and they sell him into slavery. And he's taken to a foreign land, enslaved. And he lands in a house called Potiphar's house. And he begins to work hard, and he rises through the ranks. And all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife notices Joseph. And she propositions him. And he refuses. He says, I can't. And he runs out, and he leaves. And then Potiphar's wife, at best, accuses Joseph of attempted rape, and at worst, accuses Joseph of raping her. And he is arrested. And he is thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, he encounters two high-ranking officials in the government who've also been imprisoned, one of whom has a dream, and he tells Joseph the dream. And Joseph tells him, hey, your rank is going to be restored. And when it is, remember me and put in a good word about me. And another tells Joseph a dream, and Joseph says, you're going to be executed. Well, all of a sudden, the government official who's, whose rank is restored, he's out of prison. Does he remember Joseph? No. And for years, Joseph sits rotting in jail. How many of us sign up for that assignment? Hey God, I want that one, where I'm hated by my family, I'm sold into slavery, I'm taken to a foreign land where I don't know anybody, I'm accused of attempting or raping somebody. I'm in prison. Nobody believes me. I'm forgotten about even by people that I thought I could count on. How many of us want that assignment from God? And yet God wasn't done with Joseph's story. God brings it so that Pharaoh hears about Joseph and and Joseph goes and interprets some of Pharaoh's dreams. And Joseph rises to the ranks to where he is the second most powerful person in Egypt. Now, how many of us want that assignment? Is God good when Joseph is the second most powerful person in Egypt and he's providing for his family? Yes. 
Is God good when Joseph is hated by his family, sold into slavery, taken to a foreign land, accused of raping somebody, thrown in prison and forgotten in prison? Yes. Our circumstances don't change God's goodness. God is good when he elevates Joseph to being second in command, and God is good when he allows Joseph to be maligned and imprisoned. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And then Stephen says, remember Moses, and remember what was going on culturally in the time of Moses. In, in, our, in our culture, in our world right now, we have abortion on demand, and in some places we have abortion by demand, and what was going on here was similar, just a little different. It was infanticide. It was infanticide, where all the babies that were born of the Israelites were murdered. They were murdered by the Egyptians. But God stirs in Pharaoh's daughter's heart. Pharaoh, who oversees Egypt, who's overseeing all the infanticide. God stirs in, in Pharaoh's daughter's heart, and she finds Moses, who should have been killed. And she doesn't kill Moses. She adopts Moses. She brings him into the palace. She, she mothers him. She trains him. She sends him to the best schools so that we see that Moses is uniquely positioned to care for God's people. Moses is, is uniquely educated. And we see that Moses is mighty in his words and his deeds, which is fascinating because if we would go back to Exodus 4, chapter, Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, what do we see when God calls Moses? Moses says, hey God, you've got the wrong guy because I'm really not good at speaking. But we see right here that Moses was mighty in his words and his deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So Moses leaves the palace one day. He's 40 years old, and he sees a fellow Israelite who's being oppressed by an Egyptian, and he intervenes, and that intervention becomes violent. And all of a sudden, he strikes, and he kills the Egyptian man. And he thinks, I have, I have oppressed my people. I've oppressed somebody. I have freed them from being wronged. Certainly people are going to understand what I've done. They're going to hold this in high regard. They're going to see everything that I've done, that I've put myself out there, and I've put myself on the line to save somebody else. And then the next day there's tension between two Israelites, and he goes and he breaks it up. 
And what did the Israelites say? Hey, you're the guy yesterday that came and you, you saved us. Thank you for that. Thank you for seeing evil and standing up to it and not just being willing to sit by idly and watch it happen. That's what they say, right? They applaud him and you're a hero. That's not what they say at all. They look at Moses and mockingly say, you're going to kill us too? And what does Moses do? He flees. He runs into the desert. He goes out there where he becomes exiled and he becomes a father. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt." and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Moses is 80 years old, 80 years old when, when God appears to him and says this. How many of you at 80 are signing up for that job willingly? Right? That, that's a big undertaking. But, but think about this. For 40 years, Moses has been in exile. For 40 years, Moses has known that the Israelites are being oppressed. And if Moses has known that the Israelites are being oppressed for 40 years while he's been in exile, you think God's known? And this is where we scratch our head. We say, God, what are you doing? And it's not just the 40 years that Moses has been in exile. What about the 40 years where all the infants were being murdered? In the 40 years that Moses was, was in the palace, for 80 years, God, why have you sat by idly? 80 years you have seen your people being oppressed. 80 years you've seen your people being mistreated. Where are you, God? What are you doing? That's our response. Because we see the evil. We see the oppression. And we just wonder, God, where, where are you and what are you doing? And maybe you're there. Maybe it's culturally, maybe it's personally. You're just in this place where you scratch your head and you look at what's going on in your life and you just say, God, where are you? When are you going to intervene? When are you going to do something? When are you going to change these circumstances? This Moses, Stephen continued, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. This Moses who was dismissed by his colleagues became their leader. And God performs powerful and miraculous works through him. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. 
And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Did you catch that? 40 years now in the wilderness, which means Moses is what? 120 years old. He's 120 years old. He's led the people out of captivity in Egypt. They've been wandering around, going into and towards the land that God has promised to them. And what do the people do? We don't know where he went. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know what's taking him so long. We don't know what God's up to. So instead of worshiping God, we're just going to create gods. And all of a sudden, the people who have seen God work miraculously and supernaturally and provided for them, because God doesn't operate on their timetable, and God doesn't operate according to their understanding, they choose instead to now worship things that they create instead of the Creator. Does that sound familiar? All we have to do is look around. There's nothing new under the sun. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then Stephen says, and remember the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle where the Spirit of God would reside with us as we went into battle and as we went through the desert. Remember the tabernacle, how God was with us. And then when we settled into Jerusalem and King David wanted to build a permanent home for God. And so David wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let David build the temple because David had killed Bathsheba's husband. And and so David's son Solomon goes out and builds this massive temple for God to reside in. And yet, what does Stephen say here? That God no longer chooses to reside within the temple as was declared to us when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. One of the things that happened when Jesus took his last breath is in the temple that was there, there was a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. And that was the place where the Spirit of God would reside. And there was a curtain. And that curtain it made it so that only the Spirit of God was into, into the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, because our sins had been paid for, the curtain of that temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the temple was torn into two. 
And now what Stephen says is the Spirit of God no longer resides in one place. The Spirit of God is no longer just in one place, but the Spirit of God is at work. He is alive in all of us that make the decision to follow after God. When we receive the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf to pay the price for our sins and forgive us of all of our imperfections and all of our mistakes, when we place our faith and our trust in the work that Jesus has accomplished for us, God literally comes and resides within us. He's no longer confined to one, one spot where we have to go and worship him. No, God is now alive and at work in us. And now Stephen, with this hope, he shifts from the history lesson and he makes it personal. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He holds up a mirror to them and he says, look in the mirror, look at yourselves. Look at what you have done. You resist God. You resist the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't listen to the prophets. You persecuted all of them. You wouldn't listen to Jesus. You crucified him. You who know what God requires. You who say, you know, you know the Old Testament. It's all in your head. But it's never made its way out of your head into your heart. And because the truth has never made its way out of your head and into your heart, you have missed it entirely. And you who know exactly what God requires, you refuse to obey. Because you have the knowledge, but you refuse to follow after him. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They were enraged when he points out to them their history and he points out to them the fact that it is their sin. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And God supernaturally here pulls back the curtain and God gives Stephen a glimpse into heaven. And Stephen sees Jesus in all his glory and he sees him seated on the throne next to the Father. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. They killed him, and they celebrated. And Stephen, as he's being killed, says, God, forgive them. Forgive them. I don't know what God has called you to do. I don't know the circumstances and the situations you find yourself in today. 
I don't know if you look at our culture and shake your head and feel like, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know if personally you're in the place right now where you just find yourself in the midst of turmoil and you find yourself in the midst of crisis and you've asked God and you've begged God and you've pleaded with God to intervene in this situation, intervene in this circumstance, work, and it seems God is distant and He seems it's silent. But I know that God is good in the good times. And I know that God is good in the bad times. And in the good times, that's easy to remember. So in the bad times, remember that promise. Abraham, he gave a sign to a sign of circumcision. Stephen, he pulled, back the, he pulled back the curtain supernaturally and gave him a glimpse into heaven. And I don't know how God's going to do that for you, but my hope and my prayer for you is if you find yourself today in the midst of trial and you find yourself in the midst of circumstances that you do not understand and that you cannot explain and you're starting to wonder, God, where are you? God, why aren't you working? God, have you forgotten me? God, why are you neglecting me? My hope and my prayer is you would remember. In the same way Stephen took the counsel through a history lesson. Remember the work of God. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember how God has worked previously. And remember that even though you can't explain it, That God is still in control. You may not understand why He's allowing you to face what you're facing, but it doesn't change the fact that He is still good. God, I pray that we would be people that hold on to your promise. Even in the midst of heartache, even in the midst of hardship. even when it seems that you've forgotten us or you've neglected us, when hope is in short supply, when we don't have an easy explanation, I pray especially in those moments that we would hold on to your promise. I pray for the person here, God, who's just just struggling because it seems like days and years and for ages now you haven't intervened. And I pray they wouldn't lose hope. I pray they would be obedient to go where you call them to go and do what you call them to do. God, I pray that as we live in a culture that that just tells us we have to live in an age of outrage, that we would just refuse to do that. That we would set the tone. Not wait for how other people treat us, but we would be proactive and we would set the tone. That we would choose love. And not that we would shy away from your truth, but that we would model being able to disagree without being disagreeable. God, as we follow you, 
may we get to the place where Stephen ended. That when those who oppose you and oppress us are doing their worst, may we see them with the eyes of our Savior. May our prayer for them be one of forgiveness and hope that they too would experience the salvation that's available through your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.